One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, it's so interesting. And it's hard for me to really comment on it because I was outside of the country for the majority of Obama's presidency. We actually were voting overseas when it was between Obama and McCain. And then I came back just to President Obama's final term in office. Um, And then we were gone again. We moved to China again a second time. And we were gone the entire year leading up to the election. So I arrived in the United States three weeks before the presidential election. And I really lived in a bubble, in a sense, right? Because I'm back in China, I've only got access to CNN International and what I can get online. Um, But I was busy and working in an anti-trafficking organization then, and you know, just um, kind of caught up in that. But my overall sense was like, there's no way that Donald Trump is gonna become the president of the country. But here's what concerned me. When I came home, I noticed that people refused to talk about their political opinions. They refused to talk about who they were voting for. They refused to talk about if they were voting for Trump and if they supported him. And I remember seeing a comedian, he's a conservative comedian, I can't remember his name right now, but he had posted something on Facebook saying, do not tell anybody if you are voting for Trump. Just don't even do it. Don't get into the conversations. Don't put yourself out there. And I read that and I'm like, what? I mean, we closet people like that. And that's problematic because if people are shamed and ashamed and fearful and they're not talking, you know, to me, I'm like, then I can't change anybody's mind, you know? Um, So when Trump won, I was very, very troubled and very surprised, which revealed something about myself. Um, I mean, one, I was out of the country, but two, I just did not understand this, this thing that you're talking about, which is people had eight years under President Obama, and it's like they went into this dysfunctional response of there's too much change, I want things to stay the same, and it reminds me a lot of fundamentalism. You know, it's like as as things move forward, as people talk more, as ideas start to shift and change, you have a lot of people who go, no, I can't. I can't. There's too much change. Too much is going on. This looks too different. I don't know where I fit in and I'm afraid. And so I'm going to go to what I think is going to maintain a status quo. And the status quo is white supremacy. How you day, how you day. 
That was the voice of Jen Kinney, and today's episode is one of my favorites. It's from one of my favorite Instagrammers, Jen Kinney. She discusses her journey as a white woman entering the world and understanding the privilege and power dynamics that exist. And she discusses how she learned how to go to her circle and spheres of influence to make sure that she educated them as well as herself on different ways to be more than just performative allies. We talk about different ways to actually expand the conversation, to listen more, and the importance of applying nuance in today's conversations. The importance of applying nuance in today's conversation, it's something that I feel like a like is a lost art you know sometimes we think the world is too black and white and we're too quick to shame and to judge and to make proclamations however what we do when we demean people we miss out on an opportunity to allow people to grow so i think this is an episode you're going to love and also check out our podcast our podcast is called because of racism and it's an amazing platform i'm telling you it's not just fun it's not just engaging but it's really really thought-provoking and that's what we need today thought-provoking, entertaining, and engaging content. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's episode is with Jen Kinney. Now, Jen is a writer, podcaster, and anti-racism activist. After living abroad in Shanghai, China with her husband and children for years, she returned to a country that felt more divided than ever. We're going to be talking about that. And since then, she has become a passionate advocate for building bridges through brave and difficult conversations. She's also an advocate for the everyday person's power to create change in the world. She's the host of Speaking of Racism podcast and Food for Thought dinner parties. Right there, I, I do love what, what you talk about because – so my mission statement is use your difference to make a difference, as you know. And yeah. When I came across your platform on Instagram, I remember thinking to myself, wow, this is someone who's taking in everyday conversations and really using it as an educational platform. And she's not only just using it as an education platform by, you know, sharing her thoughts and understanding that other people might have gone through the same sort of uh, understanding with the world as as is, but you also bring it on people that could be experts in the field to answer questions that many people might have, um, you know, might be curious about. So mm-hmm. I'm always curious about that mindset because there in the bio, we talked about you coming to a divided America, very much different from the America you, you knew before you, you previously left. What drive, um, sorry, what sparked that drive in you to actually do something about that? That is an interesting question. So I had lived in China from 2007 to 2011. And when I moved back to the States, I moved into suburbia. My neighbors around me were very cold and removed. I had new babies. And I was new to really like social media and the internet because of the way that China blocks out and controls media abroad. So I kind of came back and I'm just desperate for connection with people. And I'm on this new, you know, media platform at this time. You know, this is eight years ago. And so I was doing a lot of just interacting with people through that and researching and getting to know my country again. And I'd come back in an election season. And the thing I saw on social media was just like, man, people are angry. 
and they're, you know, just so divided. And it wasn't even that they had difference of opinion. It's how they were interacting with one another that really concerned me. And then on top of that, you had a lot of people who just wouldn't interact and engage at all. But I knew, and I felt like deep down, like these are things I'm passionate about. I want to be able to talk with people, connect with people. And I think people have a similar desire. And I had come from a very mixed international community with people from all over the world. And we would sit down and we would get together and we would talk about anything and everything. And sometimes we'd get into these rip-roaring political debates and discussions. I actually had no idea just how opinionated people were outside of the States about U.S. politics until I lived abroad. I'm like, dang, you guys Actually, some of you know more about my political system than I do, you know, but Mm -hmm. at the end of it, everybody really had a lot of respect for one another. So I knew it was possible to engage in this way. So that birthed the food for thought dinner parties. I wanted to bring people together and and bring them around difficult conversations, really good food. At least I was hoping I was a good enough cook for that and just bring people into a safe environment. And, And most of the time. I had very strong opinions, but I would always play moderator. And the goal was to show people that there were connecting points, even if their ideas and philosophies seemed incredibly divergent. Because in that, like my belief is, if we can strip away people's tendencies to put others in boxes to dismiss them, if we can humanize one another more and connect one another more, then maybe that's where we can start to plant seeds that change minds, open minds, change perspectives. I mean, for myself, like I grew up very staunchly politically rooted in libertarianism, for example, for many, many decades. And I have gone through tremendous philosophical transformation just in the last seven or eight years. And I'm 42. So this nonsense about, you know, like you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You can't change people's minds. People are are these stagnant, immovable forces. I don't happen to agree with that because I myself have experienced a lot of change. So that's my long story short on um on the food for thought dinner parties. And then through that process is when I started paying attention to and and learning more about injustice in the country. And specifically when Trayvon Martin was killed and the George Zimmerman trial took place, I started really digging in and I felt like I was a tennis ball in a sense where I'm like, firmly seeing this perspective and then all of a sudden I'm volleyed over, you know, and I'm, I'm seeing a different perspective. And through that process, I began to learn and realize that we had very different opinions in our country on issues of justice, policing, and race. And my friends of color, specifically my black friends, saw things very differently from my white friends. And that just that started me on this journey of observation, digging inside of my own self to figure out why I thought the things that I thought and and asking questions like, is it possible that I don't have a clue about things that are going on in my country? And that started that journey. Hmm. Uh, First of all, thank you for just going through that in-depth journey. And I, I always love when 
speakers and guests do that because I think it gives the audience a chance for people to find themselves in the story. And one of the favorite things, one of my favorite things that I heard in what you said was you recognize that, you know, people had a different perspective of a country that you grew up in and that yeah. piqued your curiosity. Uh, also, you said it's not too late to teach uh, an old dog new tricks. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about growing up libertarianism. I'm sure the audience, some do and some might not. Some of me wondering what exactly libertarianism is. What would you say? Yeah, so libertarianism is just this idea, and it it's so rooted in like this ethos that exists in our nation, whether people are libertarian or not. Um, specifically among, I would say, white passing Americans and, and majority culture Americans. And it's this idea of like the rugged individual. You pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You do things on your own. You go out to your piece of land, you homestead, you make it happen, and you don't involve government because government in a libertarian's mind is the, you know, evil and it's oppressive and it prevents your ability to to move freely through the world. Um, Now, there's a much more critical, you know, analysis of libertarianism from a political perspective and how people um, look at the Constitution and what they believe from from a founding standpoint on that level. But but that was kind of where I was like, yeah, okay, going from this rugged individualism uh, into something different. So yes. it's so interesting because I, I think about the politics in America from a very, very different perspective. I grew up spending the first nine years of my life on the two military dictatorships. And then everyone idealizes America as the paragon of democracy. So right. for me, 89 to, you know, 98, for me, you think about, you know, whether it's, you know, see Bush senior Clinton, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is so funny now when we look at the Clinton years, it's 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 very very different than right. what was perceived internationally. Yeah. Then, and then you you know then we transition to you know civilian rule, and we are still saying, look, America is the paragon. But I came to America the same time you came to America, 2007 to 2011 was my uh, that was my freshman to junior year to senior mm-hmm. year rather, and. Inter, uh, interacting with politics for me was very eye-opening because I went to a very conservative school. In fact, the largest Christian university in the world, Liberty University. Oh my gosh, you I went did. to Liberty? I did. It was the year after Jerry Falwell died. And for those that don't know, yeah. Before, yeah. for those that don't know, Jerry Falwell, Jerry Falwell was a famous televangelist who very, was very controversial, <laughs> especially right? with uh, people of color. Um, and for his opinions and, and anti, you know, LGBTQ, uh, stance, but I went there in the middle of the Obama years and wow. yeah, cause Obama was 2018 and I used to, I started to see a lot of this divide that you, you, you know, you were saying it, maybe it wasn't prevalent in the rest of the world, yeah. uh, the rest of the country. And that gave me an insight into what happens when people feel like their comfort zones are being infringed upon. I mean, I'm talking about I'm going to school, yeah. people thinking that, you know, Obama was going to bring communism and end America as is, <laughs> you know, people talking about people ending friendships based on that, you know, people. Yeah. But I also on the other side, I also saw 
um, people of color, you know, run into me, dap me, carry me and saying, we did it, we did it. And I had the interest and perspective saying, I, you know, I didn't say it to them. I was like, I didn't, you know, I'm not a citizen. I can't vote. But because right. I, because I, you know, I'm black and everybody would say, we did it. So there was a sense of identity and representation yeah. in one. And there's a sense of dread. And this person is going to ruin the country and the ideals of the country as I know it. And the person is, you know, they'll say maybe he's a Muslim. Maybe he's too affiliated with, with all these other people. So mm-hmm. you start to see a lot of that divide. Uh, and obviously since then, I, you know, I've left, but I've, they had Trump as an inauguration speaker. They had, you know, my senior year was Mitt Romney. <laughs> what was he uh-huh. So it, it, you can see what happens when you have a lot of very um, one-sided type of um, uh, views. And I, to, to the school's credit, I didn't have a bad four years there, but what I had was a perspective of what the world could look like if you only saw it from one view. Mm-hmm. I'm so curious as as how you have seen the transition from the Obama years to the Trump years as a white American. Oh, it's so interesting. And it's hard for me to really comment on it because I was outside of the country for the majority of Obama's presidency. We actually were voting overseas when it was between Obama and McCain. And then I came back just to President Obama's final term in office. Um, And then we were gone again. We moved to China again a second time. And we were gone the entire year leading up to the election. So I arrived in the United States three weeks before the presidential election. And I really lived in a bubble, in a sense, right? Because I'm back in China. I've only got access to CNN International and what I can get online. Um, but I was busy and working in an anti-trafficking organization then. And, you know, just um, kind of caught up in that. But my overall sense was like, there's no way that Donald Trump is going to become the president of the country. But here's what concerned me. When I came home, I noticed that people refused to talk about their political opinions. They refused to talk about who they were voting for. They refused to talk about if they were voting for Trump and if they supported him. And I remember seeing a comedian, he's a conservative comedian, I can't remember his name right now, but he had posted something on Facebook saying, do not tell anybody if you are voting for Trump. Just don't even do it. Don't get into the conversations, don't put yourself out there. And I read that and I'm like, what? I mean, we closet people like that, and that's problematic because if people are shamed and ashamed and fearful and they're not talking, you know, to me, I'm like, then I can't change anybody's mind, you know? Um, So when Trump won, I was very, very troubled and very surprised, which revealed something about myself. Um, I mean, one, I was out of the country, but two, I just did not understand this this thing that you're talking about, which is people had eight years under President Obama, and it's like they went into this dysfunctional response of there's too much change. I want things to stay the same. And it reminds me a lot of fundamentalism. You know, it's like as as things move forward, as people talk more, as ideas start to shift and change, you have a lot of people who go, 
no, I can't. I can't. There's too much change. Too much is going on. This looks too different. I don't know where I fit in and I'm afraid. And so I'm going to go to what I think is going to maintain a status quo. And the status quo is white supremacy, you know? And, and so that is something that I have learned a great deal about since President Trump's election and in all of these conversations that have been taking place online, because I would say that one of my biggest blinders was really my political perspective and my understanding of systemic and institutionalized white supremacy in the founding of the nation. You know, so it's taken me a lot of time to dig into history and research and learn to even get to a point Uh, where I can say that I understand the phenomenon and how he has become president and how people still support him despite what's going on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the most interesting things about being humans who are wired for connection. We also are wired to keep ourselves safe. Our brains wants to make sure we keep, ourselves safe and the best ways to do that are to make sure that you are comfortable you know so things that you fear and things that you're ignorant about tend to be things that could be seen as bad and then you add that to things that you have biases towards you know your biases start to form at the age of three it could then become dangerous and i've heard you i've read somewhere where you said there's a lot of fear trepidation exhaustion and uh, and pain surrounding the topic of racism I think people appreciate listening to conversations that are constructive, honoring, and mindful of humanity. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. According to you, we do forget about each other's humanity. And when you are unconsciously thinking that you're better than others and you have a system of white supremacy that basically maintains that status quo, that whiteness is the norm, is the standard, this is the, the heroic way of viewing life. What you're unconsciously saying to yourself is that any other thing that's anti-white or not white is a threat to your identity and by all means should be stamped out mm-hmm. and people act, act in, in that way systematically. Ah, okay. So then you did, the, you, did the, you did the thing. You were allowed to the podcast. You said, speaking of racism, it was very matter-of-factly. Right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, how, how did that come about? Did you have any fear being... A white lady, did you think someone's going to say you are infringing, you're being a culture vulture, what are you doing, this is not your place, go back to where you came, you know, all that stuff. Did you think any of that stuff would happen? Yeah, so that was something that I was really mindful of. So the journey toward the podcast, one, I am not a creative genius. So naming a podcast was like, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? So I had initially started this podcast and this is, this is me starting a podcast, total hack here, right? Um, I decided I was going to start a podcast and one hour later I had downloaded an app on my phone and I found myself talking to my phone and it was quite funny looking back because now, you know, I've got programs and I edit and I use software and And this was a program that actually didn't even allow for editing. So I would spend hours like talking and turning it off and starting over and talking and turning. I mean, it was it was madness. But I only did like 10 to 20 minute um, conversations in a sense. And it was just me. 
And I had actually started the podcast at the behest of some friends. So I got really involved in online sort of, um, there's now this organization, or maybe they existed then and I just didn't know, but it's called White Nonsense Roundup. And you can tag them all over Facebook. I believe they're even on Instagram. And they'll come in and they'll talk to people who may be kind of there causing a lot of problems or trauma. Um, and so I had a friend who was calling me over to his page and his page has like 5,000 followers and he is a more conservative radio talk show host. He's a black man. And he's like, Hey, I want you to come over and deal with the white nonsense. So I signed up for that and I went over and I would have conversations with people. And over time I developed some friendships online with some people who were like, what's your story? You know, why do you do this? How, how have you learned things, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I shared my story with them. Then that kind of started the podcast, but I'll go back even a little farther because I think the most important thing for me as a white woman in, in trying to attempt to work in, you know, anti-racism and be an anti-racist is my movement from passive to active. So I had been passively researching, learning, reading, listening to black voices, listening to leaders in the movement for years. But I was at this point where I was very concerned about not harming people because I was aware of the fact that all of my ignorance, all of my historical illiteracy, all of my whiteness, so to speak, would do harm in spaces. And so I want to be very careful not to inject myself and insert myself into that. But I went to this event called Get Your People, and it was hosted by the Detroit Equity Lab. And there was a panel of four people. And it was interesting because when I arrived, I walk in and it, there's like this sea of white people. And, and my initial gut reaction was like, what have I walked into? Like what group of well-meaning NPR listening white liberals have I stepped into? And what are these people going to teach me? And like, what, am I in the wrong place? You know, and I was really judgmental, but the panelists corrected my attitude very quickly. And they said, look, we don't want allies. We don't want you sitting on the couch cheering us on while we're putting our bodies on the line and while we're dying. We want people to be co-conspirators. And here's what it looks like to be a co-conspirator, white people. You go get your people. And so I got permission. And it was like instantly for me. I went home. I decided that my next Food for Thought dinner party was going to be on this concept of get your people. And we bought a book by a local author, Tawana Petty, called Toward Humanity. And we studied that book together and worked on that together. And that's when I started really dedicating myself to becoming more vocal and more active. And then I got into the online sphere and then it led to a podcast because I was doing other podcasting. And then eventually I got to a point where maybe four months in, I'm like, I'm trying to retell things and I'm white. Like this isn't working. My dream of dreams would be if I could just bring the conversations that I'm having in my day-to-day -day life with my friends and the people that I've been meeting and connecting with, if I could bring that for people to listen in on. And so the name Speaking of Racism was birthed really just because, you know, it's straightforward and I could get the dot com and it was available. So, wow. and, and that's how we started. So, um, and, and really for me, I thought, we'll just see where this goes. It's very organic. 
Uh, I've learned a lot along the way. I've definitely been very mindful of and concerned about how it might be perceived for me as a white woman doing this. So I try to be incredibly clear with people that I am not an anti-racism educator, that my first priority as a white passing person is to deconstruct my own internalized white supremacy and to follow the leadership of people that I'm working with in activism communities who are people of color. So maybe that answers your question. I'm not sure if I missed anything, but, um, no, it does. It does. It does. There's so much to unpack there because earlier, yeah, earlier you had said, you know, one of the things you needed to do was to be self-aware, understand what it is that you needed to learn about yourself in terms of how you saw the world. And then you took that education to the environment, understand how other people were perceiving the world and what was happening around you. Mm-hmm. Then you recognize a lot of what the white supremacy was doing to several different groups. And then it was time to use your voice. And you talked about identifying how the concept of getting your people was really important. A lot of times what happens is people that need, uh, you know, you know to, to really speak out sometimes have the privilege of not speaking out because it's something that they can just, you know, oh, wow, that's bad. I can just go back home and <laughs> it right? doesn't affect me. And I always say, educate, don't perpetuate, instead of communicate. That's mm. the same, that's the, that's the concept. You know, you you educate yourself on who you are. It's two-pronged, educate yourself on who you are and the environment. So you need to understand how the same set of rules affect different sets of people. And the don't perpetuate side is really understanding this concept of how systematically people have been oppressed and how does that affect people's identity uh, uh you know privilege power dynamics as well as the con- understanding the concept of equity and and, and equality mm-hmm. then in, the, in the, the communicate piece it's about making sure that you understand that silence isn't the, the 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 way to go you have to understand how to open dialogue with different people who have different values but also simultaneously speaking out for people that you, know, you can speak out and understanding how your voice matters in your sphere of influence. People often think that if you're telling me to speak out, that means I have to get on a, on a mic and go you know, rally uh, on the street, but they forget that we live in this digital world and they can do exactly what you did. Launch mm-hmm. a podcast, have dinners, read the books, talk, bring other people on. And that concept is something I have to applaud you on because it's, it's something you, you know, that you, you have tackled and you're not a bystander. You're a very active participant in the conversations going about. So uh, thank you for doing the work you do. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Yeah, and I really feel like the most important points for me are those points where I interact in my family with my children. I'm homeschooling my kids, and so I'm very intentional about learning along with them, but using history curriculums created by and for the purpose of shifting the narrative. Um, and, you know, even my spouse, you know, my, my partner here, he is learning as well along with us. And then my parents, my friends, and, and really like I can, I want to say like, it's easy to get online and be a keyboard warrior. And I think it's important that we understand that we need to be brave in our spaces of influence because we can, you know, argue all day online with people. And sometimes you can plant seeds and, and break through to people, but that can't be your only thing. And I think sometimes a lot of harm is caused when you have keyboard warriors, particularly white people who haven't unpacked their own internalized um, white supremacy. So they function out of shame and they shame others. And, and it's just this ugly, traumatizing process. So, so I really think like for people who are listening and going like, man, what do I do? You, you start simple. You start within yourself and then you go out from there. Uh, and I think that is incredibly important. And if that's all that somebody does, that is powerful. And people, you know, we live in this age right now where we have like the cult of personality and you have so many different people on so many different platforms with followers and they've got a voice and things. And it ends up leaving a lot of people feeling like, well, I don't really have a big platform. What can I do? How can I be a part of this? And, and they feel hopeless. And that's why I love celebrating the everyday activist, the everyday person. Because for me, I am still in my mind, the hack who's like crouched over in her closet, talking into her phone, you know, while her dog's barking and her kids are fighting, you know, like I'm a stay at home mom. Arguably, like we're, we're lovely, wonderful human beings, right? I don't want to be like down on stay at home moms, but I want to say like, I am not a person, you know, who's like out there in the world and, and, and just has this huge platform. And yet I'm creating one and I'm doing it one foot in front of the other, one day after the other, following through on something that I believe in without necessarily like an eye on like, oh, I want to have this many people following and listening. And, you know, it's just like doing the work right where you are is so important. It is. It is. And you're right. You know, you talk a lot about your sphere of influence. It does start in our backyards. It starts with our minds and it starts with the people that we can control. Because a lot of times, and I, and I use this example a lot, you know, when I first came to America, people were always arguing with me about who I was because a lot of people seemed to be surprised that I could speak English fluently and I wasn't blacker than I was because there's no way you're from Nigeria. I mean, what, what's going on? That's oh, not what I've no. seen. So they were like, well, uh, Africa's this big country. You know, I had all these ignorant statements, which I thought were jokes initially, but it was actually true. But their concept of, of my continent and country was so limited because they hadn't been exposed. And you, you're a proponent of expanding your lived experience, which is great. Mm -hmm. But what happened, what I always used to, what even got me to be more intentional about this work is I always used to wonder about 
their sphere of influence? What if their brothers, sisters, you know, boyfriend, girlfriends, partners saw all this and they just took it on? And then they went to their groups and started to say the same things they're saying. I was like, whoa, that's just going to be so dangerous. And then they become people to that can hire people. And then based on the privilege that they have or uh, prejudice that they have, rather, they're saying, oh, I can't pronounce that name. English is bad. Less competent. Boom. Ignore. That mm-hmm. th- that segues into one of the biggest issues I've seen with humanization, which is in the stories we tell. You, you recently had um, Marcy Walker on your podcast. And mm-hmm. I want to hear from your perspective how, how you think history and the stories that we tell about our world plays a role into how we see the world. Yeah. So, I mean, I, the thing, I love history. If I could go back, I would probably go back for a history degree, but there's nothing preventing me from learning now. And I have been learning a lot through homeschooling my kids. So what was really important to me, because I've got these brains that are newly forming and their, their history intake is brand new. So what and how can I change the narrative for them? So something that's common in the U.S. here is that typically black people, African-Americans, are taught, like they're introduced historically during the civil rights movement during slavery. Yes, right? very true. And you, that can, is, you, you can imagine how I feel as, not as, as, a, as a black African coming here to hear, because right? I had learned a different history. <laughs> so, right. I'm so interested, yeah. Yeah, so so what I wanted to do with my kids is I wanted to start their understanding of history on a global perspective. So we started in medieval history and we were all over the world learning about all the different empires. And so I introduced to them their introduction to um, African culture was through the lens of kingdoms, kings, queens, you know, the, the, the gold and the jewels and the richness and the beauty. And, and so their first introduction wasn't to enslaved people in this country. And that was really important to me because I believe that then once you get to the history of slavery in the United States, they're going to see these individuals as kings, queens, teachers, doctors, human beings who were captured and enslaved and dehumanized. And then they can process it through that lens and understand with more depth the fact that that was wrong and that that was a stain on our history. And so I think the power of history and storytelling is so key to this. For example, the... um, there was a documentary apparently on Netflix that introduced a lot of white people to black wall street just the other day. And what happened there? Have you heard about this? I I haven't heard about this, but you're talking about uh, Tulsa, right? Uh, The, yeah. 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 So apparently loads and loads of people, white people did not know this history and they were just introduced to it through this documentary. And so I saw a few things online, people commenting about it. I'm like, yeah, you know, okay. Um, 
I mean, I learned about it years and years ago, but I've been actively doing this work for a long time. But then there's this homeschool group that I'm a part of. It's a secular, eclectic, academic homeschool group. And there is this massive conversation going on over there where women are getting on and they're like, I'm 52 years old. I never knew this history. I just learned it the other day. I feel lied to, you know, and and people are just losing their minds over this. There is this collective realization that not only did they not know about it, but that they feel lied to. Because then when you start to realize there was a black Wall Street, there was this and, and this happened and this happened in the 1900s, you know, it, it completely busts the, the nice, neat little understanding of history that they've had in their mind and it breaks it open. And so they're asking for resources. And so I had had um, Delina Price McFall from WokeHomeschooling.com on my show and she has a history curriculum that she designed. And then I had Marcy Walker, who is working to design a history curriculum for kids, too. But what she said to me is, we adults need to learn. And even the African-Americans living in this country who have grown up, they've grown up with a lot of the same stories and a lot of the same whitewashed history. And if their family members weren't talking about it and expanding their historical perspective, they're learning about a lot of this stuff for the first time as well. So history and retelling it and really digging into it, I feel like it is one of the most important parts of this work. 100%. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's something I've been a proponent of, and it's something I, I keep saying because, you know, and because when people see you and they see someone like me who passes as an African-American or comes from this, the, I always get so many surprises from everyone, people of color, white people, and everyone. And it's almost like a lot of people don't know that there's a bigger world that exists outside. So I do understand yeah. uh, that history, uh, that Hollywood is centered here. I understand that the, the music culture, a lot of it is centered here. Oscars, Grammys, everything seems to be centered here. They call the Super Bowl the world, you know, you know, uh, you know, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest events here. Basketball is my favorite sport. It's called the world, you know, world, uh, world game, world series. Just it's going on right now. It's called the world series. So a lot of the world seems to be centered around uh, United States in pop culture, and that right. really, and you, that really influences how people see the world. Even you noticed something that I I picked up on as a kid as well is you learn about your politics growing up, but you also learn about American politics. And you talked about how other people were so well versed when you traveled about American politics is because that's just how we, we've just been conditioned. You know, my dad would tell me, you know, learn about everything and all these things, but also know what's going on here. And hmm. what what that ha does at least is unconsciously create this idea of ethnocentrism, on, um, unfortunately, where yeah. you feel like your culture is better than the other culture because, well, you're not even motivated to learn about another because everybody's been learning about yours. And when you are telling incomplete stories <laughs> you do have a lot of internalized oppression for for some people from people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember growing up as a kid thinking that I if I wasn't white because I wasn't white, uh, I wasn't good. You know, I that that was not uh, what I wanted to do. I was like, I need to bleach my skin. I need to have straighter hair. These are all real thoughts I had as a kid, and I'm thankful for my mom to help that will help me out with that. But even with her telling me those things, I still didn't believe them, and it really played uh, into how I saw myself. 
So yeah. I can only imagine what it's like to improve the representation, but also show people as uh, as heroes. You know, be little. You know, you can see little evidence of that with Black Panther or Crazy Rich Asians and things like yeah. just a subtle shift of change in a narrative and how that can that can go. Uh, you talked about Black Wall Street and how that came about with Netflix. It's another Netflix show that caused quite a stir, uh, depending on where you are <laughs> on the conversation. Mm -hmm. And it was Chelsea Handler tackling privilege. You had a very strong opinion on that. I'm very curious to hear what that was. Yeah. So actually, I wasn't aware of the special. My friend Tina Strawn, who is an anti-racism educator, and she's joined me on the show a couple of times. She was on Facebook and she just commented, you know, I'm looking for something to watch. And so I ha I'm like, well, then I'm going to watch this too. I'm not a Chelsea Handler fan. Like I've never really followed her. She doesn't give me warm feelings, you know? So, um, <laughs> she doesn't No. <laughs> no. So I kind of, you know, I'm like, let's see, let's see what this is, you know, for me, the first time that I watched it, it was very triggering for me. Um, being in anti-racism as deeply as I am, I tend to see everything that is flawed and problematic. And, and even then I don't see everything because I still view through the lens of my whiteness, but I'm seeing all of this stuff. And I'm just, I, I think at some point I was probably swearing at the television and probably through a shoe somewhere. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I really like when I say triggered, I was triggered for sure. Because after that, uh, Tina and I got on the phone the next day and we were talking and just processing through it. She said like, I'm going to bed. I've got to go to sleep. You know, she was really troubled by it. And as we were talking, we decided, you know, we should do an episode on this and we really want to talk through it more. So we decided to just do an impromptu episode on it. And it's actually like my highest listened to episode. So that's, um, that's funny. Interesting. Hey, but, congrats. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, and it keeps climbing cause people are, people are curious, but so Tina watched it a second time. And so I said, okay, well, if you're watching it a second time, I will do the same. Now, the second time that we both watched it, our experience was similar in that we weren't so triggered. We were able to really try to watch it and watch it for what was the positive, what was the negative, what were the takeaways, you know, preparing to do our podcast interview. So, um... By and large, let me see, how would I say this? Because it was such a such a big conversation. So Chelsea Handler has an awakening and she becomes aware of her privilege as a white woman and she becomes aware of the injustice that exists in our country today. And she wants to learn about it and she wants to put it on TV. She's famous. She creates a documentary. All of that stuff makes sense, right? It's a natural progression of who she is and, and where she's at. But the thing that I wish she would have done if, if I could have said, Hey, do this differently. I wish that she would have had a black colleague, somebody who was in anti-racism, who could kind of walk along with her, guide the direction of the show, 
and and give honest input on some things. Um, she had amazing guests on the show. And so what we tried to do on my platform was really highlight those guests and their work, their books, because they're the people who made the show. The biggest problem that I had with it and the thing that, that troubled me the most was the story of her ex-boyfriend. And I feel like, you know, black pain for the consumption of white learning is not okay. It's not honoring. It's not humanizing. And I really wish there was a way she would have gone about talking about that story, highlighting the people. But that to me was just like, you know, it was indefensible in a lot of ways. Uh, so I was really troubled by that. And that, that was my issue. Um, does it get the conversation going? Is she working hard to do these things uh, and shine light on this? Sure. But at the end of the day, she walks out of her door just like me. And we're white women. And we can turn off the the consequences in a sense. Like, uh, yeah, the, just the way she enters the world, I feel like she's got a lot more internal work to do before she goes and creates documentaries. So, I mean, I could say a lot. I did a whole podcast on it. You yeah, can hear it there. But, but that, my biggest issue was the, the boyfriend toward the end and his family and the way that was handled. Gotcha. And that bigs, that brings into this concept of intention and impact. And a lot of people have different conversations around that. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on intention? You know, is it bigger than impact? Is it sometimes very important to understand or is impact always bigger than intention? I'm going to say, I think that, um, I think that impact is always often more important than intention in this sense. We have to be mindful that sometimes our intention is creating violence against people. So I could have really good intentions, but those intentions become violence against somebody. The impact of my intentions are very important. Um, and yet at the same time, I understand and I leave space for the fact that we are human beings who are flawed and we have a variety of life experiences and traumas and processes that we bring to our story. And, and as we look into these other stories, we're also bringing our story and our process into that. So I try to balance this idea of seeing another person's humanity and honoring that and also calling it out when it needs, you know, like also just saying like, that was wrong. I still love you and see and honor your humanity. But if you really want to be a part of this change, then here's how you might want to go forward. If that makes sense. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. You know, I, I see it through a, through a nuanced uh, prism sometimes because obviously with the mm -hmm. in intent versus impact, you know, some think about it from this lens. If you step on someone's feet and you break the person's feet, you still broke the person's feet, right? And the intention right. might not have been what, what that was. And then there, there are oftentimes I've seen where assuming positive intent, uh, positive intent works in terms of you're in a heated dialogue or you, this is someone you're, you're working with and, you know, someone might have said something 
I don't know, it could be a boyfriend or a, a girlfriend or a partner. And, you know, saying something as simple as, hey, I'm not sure you realize what you what you meant when you said this, but, you know, could mm-hmm. you walk me through your thought? It's helpful. It's very nuanced prism. That's why I, I hate the black and whiteness of how we tackle some of these topics, because when it's done on an online prism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes people just go quick to crucify without even trying to understand the other side. And that's happened on, across the aisle on many things. So, yeah. Well, yeah, and yeah. I think of like call out culture, right? Yeah. Cancel culture is the epitome yeah. of what I'm talking about here. Exactly. Because, but, but yeah, when you think about what happens with cops and those things, I definitely think the, the, the intent doesn't, to me, the impacts are so much greater there. You know, mm-hmm. you're in a position of power, you have a gun, you know, you know, your intention was to provide, provide something, but you, maybe you didn't work through your bias and then you end up shooting someone else in that person's life. That's, that's a different thing. But right. I'm talking about when it, it's conversations to your, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to your credit here, what you're doing with your, with your platform and people are having conversations and someone has decided to destroy your reputation and cancel you before you, you know, they even know who you are and maybe you said the wrong word and you had no idea what that was. Uh, it's very interesting with that. Uh, so I, oh, have, yeah. I, I, I go back and forth with, you know, you know, <laughs> I, I'm passionate about that. So yeah. I'm really passionate about that. So for me as a white woman, staying in my lane and calling out uh, other white people, the the one thing that infuriates me is the shaming and the canceling and the calling out among white people. And and it and I understand like it comes from trauma. It comes from unresolved um, guilt and shame. And and so you end up having all of these impulses like being a savior and and coming across as being uber woke and all of these things, but it causes just that much more trauma in every other space. And I feel like the one thing that white people don't get to do who are in this work is they don't get to cancel people and step out of conversations because they're just tired and they're pissed off and they're frustrated with somebody. You know, it's like that to me is a privilege that we don't get. And I feel like humanizing people, asking questions, digging in further, giving people suggestions like I can smell a troll pretty, you know, well, but I still will say to them, you know what? You go and you look up this podcast here and you read this thing. And then if after that you want to come back and have a conversation with me, meet me in the DMs and we'll talk. Yeah. And and I always want to give people a, a place where they can return to civility because that is so important. Because if we just, you know, run around like bumper cars in this, the work is not going to get done. It won't. It won't. It won't. It won't. Yeah. I do think we live in this world where you're either too politically correct or you're a troll. And people will forget yeah. that. A lot of it happens in in the middle. <laughs> so absolutely, uh, that's uh, that's amazing. I always enjoy talking to you. So okay, before we wrap up, I want to give you a chance to talk about your upcoming book and yeah. the other project. Yeah, the other projects you have going on. Yeah, awesome. So first, congratulations on your book. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate. I'm that. so excited about that, and you're off touring and doing all of these amazing things to promote it. Um, so my book is, is not my book. Um, I co-authored with a team of people. Um, my friend, Maisha T from check your privilege. She asked 
for uh, fellow white co-conspirators to share their journey. And so we have put this book together. Maisha T has put this book together called Check Your Privilege, Living Into the Work. And it's going to be available for pre-sale in about two weeks. All of the proceeds will go to Maisha T's uh, nonprofit called Brown Sister Speaks. And that is for mental health for women of color and their children. And so I'm just really excited about it because, you know, like I've wanted to tell my story and I've wanted to talk about these things, but I'm not going to go out and write a book and make money and do all of those things off of this because I feel like that would be, you know, for me, not appropriate. So when Maisha said, Hey, would you be interested in joining me on this, this book writing journey? I was like, yeah, absolutely. Sign me up because she is a mentor of mine. She does mindfulness approach to anti-racism work, helping white women process through, um, and, and grow deeper into the work of becoming a co-conspirator. So yeah, so that's, that's the book. And if people are interested in it, Follow Check Your Privilege on Instagram, and she will be releasing the details on all of that and have all the links available. I'll do some as well, but she's really going to be the one who's going to keep people updated on that. And uh, I mean, you also have an amazing podcast. Well, what about your podcast and where can people find you? you know? Yeah. So my <laughs> podcast is, you know, creatively named Speaking of Racism. I was really excited, though. Yesterday, I got a shout out um, that was just incredibly incredibly humbling. Um, and I'm always surprised when that happens because I'm like, but I'm just the podcaster crouched in my closet, you know, mm -hmm. like how is this possible? But Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil wow. said she came across it and was really, um, enjoying it. And it's not about me. It's about the guests that I have on. And I'm excited in the new year because I've got a surprise for the podcast as well. We're going to have some changes, but I will announce that later when I'm at liberty to do so. Uh, but yeah, you can find Speaking of Racism on all platforms and speakingofracism.com. So yeah. Wow. Wow. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes as well. And ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary individuals, I do want you to understand that this is a great podcast. I'm not just saying it. It's, it's one that allows you to open your mind and expand your, your lived experience. But also, um, it's, a, it's another place for you to just feel like you're listening to conversations that you could be curious about, you know, kind of like kind of conversations you wish you could have with politicians uh, without any, <laughs> any, right? bar any barriers <laughs> or, or without the two minute timers or three minute timers. Right. So, so uh, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I really love the work you're doing. The, the last question I ask my guests is my mission statement framed as a question. So my mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. How do you use your difference to make a difference? Jen? In my journey here over the last, I would say eight years, I have experienced a freedom to engage and to be present and to connect with other human beings. And I experienced that freedom in part through learning about my own internalized oppression, by learning about the role that shame played in my life to keep me quiet. And I see it in so many areas. And so I have a heart for connecting people 
to just this greater idea of humanity and how we can move toward humanity together. So everything that I do is sort of an attempt to model my imperfection, my mistakes, my simplicity, you know, like that's why I love just saying like I'm an average human being doing what I feel like is a fairly average thing. Let's all find that within ourselves and move toward humanity together in that. Moving toward humanity together. Well, thank you. I couldn't ask for a better way to end the episode. So thank you for doing that work. And thank you for being motivated to continue to do the work. I know it can be hard sometimes, but you have not let that uh, derail you or stop you or even prevent you from passing it on to your kids and circle of influence. So thank you for that. Thanks, Tayo. The pleasure is mine. Ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary folks, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.